You're listening to the Caroline Springs Anglican Podcast. And so I encourage you this week, just give this a shot. If you're talking to your barista or your mechanic or what, whoever, a co-worker at, at, at work or, or a fellow student at school, have a go at this. Think to yourself, in the midst of this conversation, without tuning out, right, you need to listen with one ear and then with the other part of your brain, think, where does this conversation fit into the story of the Bible? Is it about creation? Is it about fall? Is it about redemption or restoration? So you'll find this story written throughout the Bible. We've said this before, creation you'll find in the first couple of pages of the Bible, the first couple of Chapters are about creation, and it, and, it, and it affirms for us what we already know to be true, that the world is a good place, that it's a beautiful place, that God is a brilliant artist, and he's engineered the world in ways that will blow your mind, whether you're a Christian or not. We can look around at the world around us and just say, whoa, this is incredible. And it's incredible because a perfect God designed it. But we know by the third chapter in the Bible, we see the great fall, a fall from that perfect created order into chaos. We also know that while the world is good, it's also chaotic, it's broken. It's not the way that we know it should be. It's not the way that God intended it to be. And so in Adam and Eve's sin, we all, the Bible says, we all share corporate responsibility for the way the world is. So in answer to the question, what's wrong with the world, we can confidently say, I am. I am. I'm part of the problem. Sin, the sin that's in me, is what's wrong with the world. And we can communicate that to our friends. It's so often that we, 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 we view the world as being out there, and what's wrong with the world is being out there. You know, it's, it's the fault of the, of, of the whoever, the other if only everyone was more like me. But actually, Christianity corrects that and says, no, actually, if everyone was like you, we'd be in a mess. So we have this shared corporate responsibility for the, for the reason that the world is broken. And then God, because he loves us, because he created us to, to cherish us, steps in right there in the very chapter in Genesis chapter 3, where the world falls, he steps in and he, and he gives this great promise. He says, yes, the world is broken. Yes, there are consequences for your sin and your rebellion. But I'm going to send someone into this world to crush the head of the serpent. That is, to overcome all that is broken and sinful and chaotic in the world. And we know as Christians, looking back through history, we know that that one was none other than the Lord Jesus. That is, God sent himself to be that one who would redeem us. Redemption is a key, key theme in the Bible. We just sang about it, right? And that beautiful song that we started off with, all about the redemption that God gives us, brings us. It's not a word that we use so much today. Maybe you would redeem a a coupon or something, maybe. Um, But redemption is just this. It comes from the slave market, right? To redeem someone is to buy them, to purchase them, to bring them out of slavery and into liberation. And that's exactly what God did. He, He purchased us with the blood of his own son. And we know that 
has its fullest expression in the blood of Jesus, but we see it in the book of Exodus as well. When we get to chapter 12, when we're just working, working, working up to chapter 12, we'll get there in mid-October, it's going to be a landmark Sunday for our church, letting you know. We see this foreshadowing of Jesus' blood-bought redemption in the Passover, that is, that God in his mercy, made a way for his people to be saved from that great tenth plague and judgment by the blood of a perfect lamb. So we see redemption, and then even those of us who have been redeemed know that we are not yet who we should be. We are not yet who God has purposed us and created us to be. And so we don't just settle into our redemption, but we look yearningly, eagerly for the restoration that's yet to come. We live in what theologians call the now and not yet. We have now redemption in Jesus. We have been blood-bought. We have been purchased and adopted and brought into his family. We have forgiveness of sins, but we are not yet who we yearn to be. We are not yet made perfect now and not yet. So we have redemption, but we look forward to restoration. And we know, the Bible tells us, that that restoration is coming. It might come before I finish this sermon. It'd be a little disappointing, because I've kind of worked hard on this, right? So Jesus is going to come like a thief in the night. He's going to come on the spur of a moment, it's going to seem to us. But actually, it's going to be the fulfillment of God's plan of redemption that he instituted actually in eternity past before anything was made. And so we look forward to that restoration. Again, in conversations with our friends, we can, we can communicate that hope to them because most people live in a world where things are going crazy and they don't have a hope. They don't have something solid to hold on to. They put their hope in things that do not deliver, more education or more democracy or whatever, more tolerance. These things will not deliver what they're hoping for. But we know that the great deliverance is coming in the restoration that God is bringing at the end of all things. We look to that new creation. And so throughout the series, we've fit this book of Exodus into that big storyline of the Bible. And this is very much a, 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 a a story of redemption, especially the first half of the book that we're looking at between now and the end of the year. This is our seventh week, and we've started out pretty slow. We're going to pick up the pace starting next week in order to get to the end of chapter 18 by the time we get to Advent. But the context for this morning's passage is given to us in a little flashback that Moses has. Remember, he's the one who's writing this uh, book of Exodus, indeed the first five uh, books of the the Bible called the Pentateuch, and he has a little flashback, and it gives us the context for our passage this morning, all right? So if you want to pick up a Bible, uh, we're in chapter 4, and the context is set for us in verse 21 to 23. The Lord said to Moses, when you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I have given you the power to do, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son. I told you, let my son go so he may worship me. But you refuse to let him go, so I will kill your firstborn son. A little summary of what we saw last week. 
that God communicating to Moses all that he was going to do through him. You might remember Moses' first reaction was to look at his own inadequacies and, and to object to being the one that God would send, but God insisted. He also showed him grace by providing his older brother Aaron to go with him and be the spokesperson for him. We're going to see that uh, at the end of this passage today. They join up. That's the context in which we find ourselves this week. So God has given Moses his marching orders. He's given him his message. He is to go to the most powerful man in the world, bar none, and demand that he release these slaves who are the people of God. And he refers to them there, and this is really important. He refers to his people there as his firstborn son. That's how God sees his people. They are his firstborn. Son, and he loves them, he cherishes them, he protects them as his firstborn son. I had this experience, and every form of analogy between my fatherhood and God's fatherhood is, is inadequate, right? Because I'm not a perfect father like him. But I was up in my family, uh, my wife and kids were up in Echuca for a, a long weekend, and, um, and so I was up there yesterday, and we were having fun just mucking around. Uh, and my, my brother has a house up there, and, uh, and because I was in charge of the kids, um, they always get hurt when I'm in charge, right? So Renee was having a little rest, and, um, and we were doing like, uh, um, kind of like just couch diving. And, um, and, and so uh, <laughs> um, it was going fine, and, um, and we were going off the top of the couch, not me, when I say we, I mean them, that they were jumping off the top of the couch onto a beanbag on the floor which was fine. It was all fine. And then Judah decided that he didn't need the beanbag. And so he, was, he stood up on top of the couch and he said, I'm totally awesome! And then dived off straight onto the hardwood floor. Just direct hit. And kind of bounced a little bit. And then, you, you know that your parents, you know the, the cry your kids do when, when they need to cry so much that they can't cry? It's just like... There's no noise coming out. He was doing that. And, um, and so I went and scooped him up and took him in my arms and just held him as tight as I possibly could. And we stayed there until he was kind of over it and he had a nice big egg on his head. Now that experience, which is often triggered by the pain that our kids feel, is the experience that, that, that gives voice to this designation by God that he is going to rescue and release his firstborn son. That's how he feels about the people of Israel. He can see them in their suffering. He can see them crying out to him. And his response is to go to them and to rescue them, redeem them. And he does this throughout the book of Exodus, even when they're in trouble because of their own stupidity. Right? They've, throughout this book, they are often couch diving onto the floor, right? And it's their fault. They've got themselves into this. And again and again and again, God, in his fatherly love, comes to them, and takes them in his arms, and nurtures them. And that's the fatherly love of God. They are his firstborn son. Remember, we've looked at this over and over again. Genesis 12, God comes to Abraham and he says to him, you are going to be the father of many nations. You are going to be the father of my people. You are going to be my firstborn son. 
That's how God sees his people. And then the beautiful thing is that this is carried throughout the Bible and it has massive implications for how we see ourselves. The identity, not that we make for ourselves, but the identity that God gives us objectively. So check this out. This is really cool. So in Hosea chapter 11 and verse 1, God says, when Israel was a child, I loved him out of Egypt, I called my son, right? Thinking back to the, the, specifically what we're talking about in this series, the exodus from Egypt, God says, by way of summary, this is how it went. Israel was my son, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called him. I saw his pain, I saw his suffering, and I rescued him. I gathered him up in my arms. Israel is God's firstborn son. And then Matthew interprets this for us and brings it to its fulfillment when he speaks of the Lord Jesus. Matthew chapter 2. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt. That's Joseph. Where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, that's Hosea, out of Egypt I called my son. This is how God thinks of Jesus. Jesus is his firstborn son. Jesus is the fulfillment of all that Israel was meant to be. And so Matthew puts those two things together and says, this is the fulfillment of Israel. Jesus is God's firstborn son whom he loves. And then, miracle of miracles, in 1 John chapter 3, this is what John says about us See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God and that is what we are. It's not just Israel that God has called out to be his cherished firstborn son and it's not just that Jesus was the fulfillment of all of that and the perfect representation of that. John says that's who we are. Even those of us, I think every one of us probably this morning that aren't Jewish by birth and heritage. We have been brought in to stand with those whom God first called, to stand with Jesus himself. We have been made brothers and sisters of him and them. And if you can read that passage without the exclamation marks, then you're not getting it. John's trying to tell us, hey, this is incredible. Don't miss this. The astonishing truth is that God looks at you, like even you with what you did last night, right? Or even you with how you spoke to your kids this morning. Even you, God looks at you and says, you are my son. You are my daughter. See what great love. The Father has lavished on us. That's a great word. Lavished. That we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. So if you come in this morning in any doubt about how God sees you and and you're standing with him, first of all, I want to ask, why are you in doubt? Is it because you haven't yet received what Jesus has done on your behalf. You haven't yet been redeemed out of slavery. We're going to talk more about that and the seriousness of that in a little bit. But if you have been, if you have been blood-bought by Jesus, 
if you've received what he has done for you and put your faith in the sacrifice that was made on your behalf, then you need to know this. You are God's child. That's what you are. And where everything around us, including ourselves, will try and define who we are, God says, no, 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 I define who you are. You are my child. I love you. And so on that basis, God is going to move and act and save and rescue his people. He's seen them in pain. He's seen them cry out. He's seen them under the yoke of Pharaoh, and he will move now to rescue them. And it's very clear in this passage, I hope you picked up on it, it's very clear that God is drawing a line in the sand here. The rest of this series, up until we get to the Exodus in chapter 12, is going to be God over and again saying to Pharaoh, this is me versus you, and there's only going to be one winner. God draws a line in the sand, and on one side of that line, there is peace and salvation and safety, and on the other side, there is judgment and condemnation. And in fact, the line doesn't just go in the sand between left and right, but it goes around his people. He says, where the line of covenant has encircled my people, there there will be safety. There there will be redemption. And outside of that, there will be judgment and condemnation. This is a very stark line in the sand. And so he says, Moses, you need to say to Pharaoh, let my son go so he may worship you. But you refuse to let him go, so I will kill your firstborn son. The line is drawn between God and Pharaoh, between God's people and Pharaoh's people, between God's son and Pharaoh's son. The line has been drawn in the sand. Now, just how serious that is, is the subject of the next part of the passage that we're going to look at. And, uh, and we're going to put the two parts together, okay? So if you go to verse 18 to 20, and then 24 to 26. Then Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, let me return to my own people in Egypt to see if any of them are still alive. Jethro, Jethro said, go, and I wish you well. Now the Lord had said to Moses in Midian, go back to Egypt, for all those who wanted to kill you are dead. So Moses took his wife and sons, put them on a donkey, and started back to Egypt, and he took the staff of God in his hand. Verse 24, at a long lodging place on the way, the Lord met Moses and was about to kill him. But Zipporah took a flint knife, cut off her son's foreskin, and touched Moses' feet with it. Surely you are a bridegroom bridegroom of blood to me, she said. So the Lord let him alone. At that time she said, bridegroom of blood, referring to circumcision. Now, this is a bizarre story, right? This is is weird. We can say that, all right? We, We love the Bible, and this is weird. And I like I in reading that, my mind just went to a meme, and this is the one I came up with. It's a picture that's going to... There we go. Ron Burgundy. Like, 
That did escalate quickly. God sent Moses, he's on his way, and then boom, God turns up. And there's a lot about this we don't know, right? 3,000 years later, there's still a lot. We just need to fess up and say there's a lot about this we don't know. But what I love about this is, just in general, I love the honesty of the Bible. It doesn't self-edit so that everything looks shiny. Right? I remember, uh, this past week, I, I don't know about you, but my Facebook feed is just full of people debating same-sex marriage and plebiscite and all that stuff. And in one of these little debates, um, which I don't think ever go anywhere, but anyway, what, uh, a friend of mine was sort of defending a traditional view of marriage and you know, listing some Bible passages, and then someone I don't know was said to him, well, you know, you can't, you can't throw the Bible at us. It has been changed so many times over the years that we don't even have the Bible that, we, that, that, that once was, and so we can't trust it with anything, which um, actually is emphatically wrong. It's just a massive myth. And if you want to know more about that, go to our last series um, and look at the message called Can We Trust the Bible? Um, but... Another way that we can know that that's not true is that this story just would have been cut out at some point, right? At some point over the last 3,000 years, someone would have said, that's not going to go well for us. Like, just if, if someone was taking PR scissors to this, you're like, we can do without that. It doesn't really change anything in the story. Moses, we just, Moses just skips ahead to Egypt, right? That's what we would do. But it isn't cut out, and it is weird, and there's a lot about it we don't know. Like we don't know who or how or why. We don't know who it is that God is going to kill. In the, it sort of intimates here in our text that it was Moses, but actually in the original, it's not clear. It does, it's not clear whether it was Moses or his son Gershom. But God has turned up and he's going to kill one of them, Moses or Gershom. We don't know who it is. We don't know how he's going to do it. We don't know if God sent some kind of angel to kill them or if it's a heart attack or we, we don't know how it's going to happen. And we, we don't, and most importantly, we don't know why. We don't, we don't know why God has shown up to kill the ones who he's just sent to achieve this great plan of redemption for his people. So we just need to be honest about that. That's fine for us to say when we come across a text in the Bible, we don't really know what this means exactly. That's okay. There ought to be things in God's word that we're not completely sure about, if it is God's word. But here's what I think is going on here, all right? And, um, and it turns out that it's one of the most important messages that we can hear. Here's what I think is going on. God has just drawn a line in the sand a very stark line in the sand between the safety that his people will experience in covenant with him and the judgment that those outside of the covenant will face at his hand. Very stark line. And what is the sign that someone is in covenant with him, in safety? What's the sign? Circumcision. Right, so Genesis 17 this is where God speaks to Abraham and he says, As for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you for the generations to come. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you. The covenant you are to keep, every male among you shall be circumcised. 
You are to undergo circumcision and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. For the generations to come, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised, including those born in your household or bought with money from a foreigner, those who are not your offspring. Whether born in your household or bought with your money, they must be circumcised. My covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So the sign that you are safe from God's judgment and just wrath is circumcision. And Gershom, Moses' own son, is uncircumcised. He doesn't bear the mark of the covenant. And so God, I think, attacks him in a sort of foreshadowing of the attack that God will bring to bear against the uncircumcised Egyptians. This is a little picture of what's going to happen. This is a little picture of God's just wrath against those who are out of covenant with him and it's manifest in Moses' own family. We don't know why exactly Gershom is uncircumcised. It's understood that the Midianites circumcised men when they were adults, which are, you know, why? Like, get it over eight days old, you won't remember it. Anyway, um, so it could be that Moses has just has assimilated into their culture and has forgotten his Israelite heritage. We don't know exactly why Gershom hasn't been circumcised, but it's a big deal for God. He is outside of the covenant, and this is, I think, a manifestation of what is going to happen on a grand scale in Egypt as God pours out his justice against those who are not in covenant with him. So I think that's what's going on, and I think that's why Zipporah saves the day by performing an emergency circumcision, right? Flint knife out, cut off the foreskin. It gets even weirder because most biblical scholars think that feet Moses' feet is a euphemism for his genitals, so either she cuts it off and chucks it at his feet, or even more graphically, right? And, and we don't know, again, we don't know why she does this. We don't know how she knows that this is what's at stake. We don't know how, like, apart from divine revelation, we, we don't know how she would know what to do in this situation. But again, it's another evidence of a, a woman saving a man in the Bible through her um, quick thinking, Whatever it is, it seems to be about circumcision because, verse 28, after she's done this, the Lord let him alone. So I think what God is doing, he's done it in word and now he's done it in deed. This is serious. This line I've drawn in the sand is not just for rhetorical effect. This is what happens to those who are out of covenant with me. Judgment is poured out. And the judgment is just. So what has this got to do with us? I made fun of preachers last week whose sermons are always like 10 steps to achieving a perfect hedge or whatever it is. Like, like really, that's that's what we're listening to this week? But when you think about it, you come to passages like this and it's like, well, I don't know, the hedge seems a little bit more relevant to me in Caroline Springs. In 2017, what has this got to do with us? 
I think it has everything to do with us. I think this is a really stark and important message for us to hear because the line that God draws between those who are in covenant with him and those who are out of it, between those who enjoy his safety and those who will, will, will undergo his judgment, that line continues through Exodus, through the rest of the Bible and into eternity. That line has its manifestation ultimately in judgment day. And at the judgment, God is going to divide those who are on either side of that line. And for one group, there is going to be everlasting life. And for the other, there is going to be everlasting condemnation. And this is not just cranky Old Testament God, right? This is Jesus who gives us the most stark description of this. So Matthew 25 He gives us a a picture of how this is going to look, each side of this line. He says, when the Son of Man comes, right, that that restoration day that we're looking forward to, in his glory, and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He makes it very binary, much more binary than most of us are comfortable with, He says, all the nations, all peoples, two sides. And that dividing line will determine whether you are safe or whether you are condemned. And so what God is demonstrating here in this very stark and kind of bizarre way is something that is of absolute importance to us. The day is coming where it will be the most important thing in the universe. Are you in covenant Or are you out of covenant with him? And what's the sign of the covenant? What's the sign of the new covenant? Let's look at Colossians chapter 2. In him, you Christians were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. You know, Christians, if you're here this morning, you've been circumcised. Men and women, you've been circumcised. You've been circumcised by Christ. And what was cut off from you was not any part of your flesh. It was your capital F flesh. It was your sin. It was your rebellion. It was everything that deserves God's just condemnation. Everything that's driving his judgment was cut off from you by Jesus. It wasn't a circumcision done with a flint knife. It was a circumcision done by the Lord Jesus And the blood that was shed wasn't your own blood. It was blood shed by him on your behalf. And the sign that you were given is not an altered appendage, right? The sign that you were given is baptism. Your baptism is the sign that you have been bought by Christ. It is the outward manifestation of an inward reality. That inward reality that Jesus did in you, that circumcision, finds its outward manifestation in your baptism. 
And it's graphically portrayed here by Paul that in baptism, as you go down into the waters, it's like you're being buried in the ground like Jesus was. You're dead. Every part of you that's in rebellion against God is dead and buried. And then as you come out of the waters, it's as if you've been raised with Christ. It's your own resurrection. And it's all done by the working of God who raised Jesus from the dead. If you're a Christian here this morning, you've been circumcised, you've been crucified, and you've been raised again. And that's the outward sign of your being in covenant with God. And being in covenant with God is everything. Being in covenant with God is what keeps you safe when he comes to visit visit his just wrath and condemnation on all people. It's that which secures you. Not that being baptized is the agent of your salvation, but it's the outward sign of your salvation. It's interesting that she, Zipporah, says to Moses, you are a bridegroom of blood. We don't know exactly what she means there, but it's related to marriage. And for me, baptism is a little bit like marriage in that it's an outward sign of an inward reality. That is, my wedding ring is an outward sign to you of an inward reality that I've been made one flesh with Renee. Now, you can put on a wedding ring as a three-year-old, right? Anyone can put on a wedding ring. But the sign isn't effective until the reality is complete. And so a wedding ring for a married person is a sign of something greater, and so it is with baptism. You can be dunked under the water as many times as you like, but unless Jesus has done a work of circumcision in your life, then it's just an empty sign. And the wonderful, beautiful, astonishing, cosmic result of this circumcision of the flesh is in the next two verses. So check this out. Colossians 2, 13 to 14. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away Nailing it to the cross. That's redemption. You were in debt. You were in slavery. It was a debt that you could never pay. And it was leading you inextricably towards condemnation. Judgment. But because of what Jesus has done on your behalf, in his blood shed for you, he took all that was going to condemn you. He circumcised it. He cut it off. And he nailed it to the cross. This is stark language. So everyone, everyone who has ever lived is is going to, at some point in the future, find themselves on either side of that line. And so it's manifestly important this morning that you ask yourself, are you safe? Are you safe? Are you saved? That's why we use that language of salvation. It's not just about being saved from a life of purposelessness and then given purpose or something just surface like that. It is deep and it is eternal. 
And what we've been saved from is not just bad self-esteem. We've been saved from God. What do you need to be saved from this morning? Not financial instability. You need to be saved from God. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And so that day is coming when Jesus comes back and it will be beautiful restoration for those who are in the covenant and it will be terrible judgment for those who are outside. And no one believed in this more than Jesus who gave himself for you. So the question you've got to ask yourself this morning is, are you in covenant? Not just, do I have the sign of the covenant, but are you in covenant with God? Remember the words, and just test yourself here, remember the words of Romans 10.9. This is what Paul says, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Saved from what? Saved from God's just condemnation. And it's not just an outward wedding ring, right? It's not just declare with your mouth. It's not just come to church. It's not just say the prayers, read the Bible, sing the songs. It's believe in your heart. This is a heart issue. It's not outward circumcision. It's inward circumcision. It's not just outward declaration. It's circumcision of the heart. So everyone here this morning, I don't care how long you've been to church, Everyone needs to ask themselves the questions, am I safe? Am I a member of God's covenant community? We try and encourage you to do this every week before we share the Lord's Supper. We say, echoing Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, you must first examine yourselves and only then eat of the bread and drink of the cup. And he says those who don't do that drink judgment on themselves. Why? Because they're outside of the covenant. And in some sense, the Bible seems to say that those who do go to church, who do sing the songs, who do take the Lord's Supper without being in covenant will be liable for more judgment than those who are naively outside of the covenant. This is really important. The stakes are the most high for the people sitting in the church. Are you in covenant with the Lord Jesus? Now, the beautiful, beautiful good news of the gospel is that where we hear this message and think, oh, what have I got to do? What have I got to do? Beautiful good news is that it's all been done for you. God sacrificed his own firstborn son to bring you into covenant with him. So it's not so much about what you need to do, it's about what you need to receive, what's been done on your behalf. And the purpose of this message this morning is to implore you, to exhort you, not to turn away from the gift that God wants to give you this morning. Receive it. God wants to adopt you. I tell you, one of the most beautiful things that we can experience in this life is seeing an orphan being adopted into a loving family. That is a beautiful thing. And that's exactly what God wants to do with us. If you're here this morning and you're a spiritual orphan, 
you don't know God as Father, then he's coming before you this morning and he's saying, I want you. I, I want you, not just a future version of you, like a better, cleaner version of you. I want you in all of your brokenness. I want you to be my child. I want to bring you into the safety of my household. I want to make you a brother or sister of my own son, Jesus. And all of it is possible because of his sacrificial death. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might be the righteousness of God. You have seen this morning the concern that God has for you, his heart to bring you into covenant with him, into safety. He's seen your misery and your sin and your brokenness and he wants to rescue you from that and our response, if you've received that, ought to be to bow down and worship. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, now as we rise to worship you, may we do it out of a great sense of gratitude for all that you've done for us. Lord, some of us don't know the danger that we've been rescued from, and I pray that the message this morning would would enable us to experience that. We were in grave and eternal danger, and you stepped in and rescued us as your firstborn son, And so we owe you our lives. We want to be living sacrifices. And Father, I pray and I plead for your mercy and compassion and grace for those here this morning who aren't yet covenant members of your family. I pray that you would step in and adopt them. Lord, I know that no amount of chatting on my behalf is going to do that miracle. It's going to be a beautiful, gracious act of your Holy Spirit. So, Lord, please do that now, even now. We love you. We praise you for your grace. We rejoice in our standing as your covenant people. We look forward to Jesus coming, not with dread, but with anticipation of the restoration that will happen. Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive praise and honor and glory and power. In Jesus' name, amen.